The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. You guys glad to be here tonight? Yeah, where else would you rather be? This is beautiful. It's a wonderful time. Great to see so many faces. It's a little odd having a room that holds 3,000, and there's 100 of you scattered around, so I'll do my best to be talking to all of you. If it feels like I'm just talking to those of you in the very front, I apologize. I'm not doing that on purpose uh, in any way. Uh, My name is Dave Cummings, as Pastor John said, and I'm just here to share with you a little bit of God's story in my life. Can we use a little bit of that tonight? All right, good. Listen, a couple things you need to know about me before we get started. Number one, I'm not a pastor, okay? Not a pastor. Number two, not an MD. Number three, I'm not a therapist or a psychologist. By now, you should be thinking, okay, what right do you have to be talking to us about mental health in the church then? And I want to tell you that I think that that I'm the right guy to be here tonight because I pose what I think of as a triple threat. I'm a triple threat. Let me tell you why that is. Number one, no, I'm not the therapist with all the training, sitting in the room, hearing all the stories, but I have been the patient. I've been sitting in that chair for many years now, sharing my own journey, sharing my own stories. And the stories I'm going to share with you tonight are all from personal experience, all of them. Okay, The lessons learned are all from personal experience. That's number one. Number two, as Pastor John said, I do have training and experience as a scientist. uh, And because of that, I do tend to look at things from sort of a scientific perspective. And as someone who works in the healthcare sciences, I'm a microbiologist. My emphasis is on infectious diseases and things like that. Uh, I have a tendency, a bent towards looking at what's going on very, very carefully, the minutia in the human body, and in this case, in the human brain. In fact, I was telling Pastor John before we came out here that when I first got my own diagnosis and began the healing process, I couldn't just take this therapist or this psychiatrist's word for it. I had to go to the scientific literature. I had to dig into the detailed, nitty-gritty stuff that's going on between the synapses up here and try to understand it as well as I can. That's just the way I'm wired. And what that means then is that I do have a good, solid, clear understanding of what happens in the human brain as God designed it, even when it goes wrong. So number one, I said I'm not, uh, I'm not a pastor, but I am the sufferer, if you will, right? I'm the patient, and I think that gives a unique perspective on this story. Number two, I do come at it from the point of view of a trained scientist with, I've been in microbiology since 95 now, so however many years that is. I've got a lot of years of experience diving into these kinds of things. But number three, overarching both of those is that I'm a follower of Jesus. Amen? We can get people that share with us in the form of a book or a lecture or a TED Talk that maybe have all the science, but they don't know the Lord. They're missing some pieces, aren't they? There's some understanding that they're missing. There's a perspective that they're missing. Or we can get people who maybe are Christians and they've worked as therapists for years and years, and boy, have they got some insight from all those people. But they've never been the sufferer. They've never been the patient. They haven't actually lived through some of these things. So you see why I like to say I'm a triple threat here? 
right? I've got, I've got three good reasons I think that God has me standing on this stage right now sharing my journey with all of you. And I do believe that he plans these things. I do believe that you're not here on accident tonight, whether you knew what the topic was or not. Uh, and, uh, and I think we're going to enjoy our time. And that's weird, isn't it, to say we're going to have a fun time, not only in church, but we're going to talk about mental health and mental illness, and we're going to smile, and we're going to laugh, and we're going to let our guard down a little bit, and we're going to relax as we think about this and try to embrace some of the reality of it. Right? And that's what we're all about tonight. So to get us started, I want to tell two stories. And your job is to figure out what these two stories have in common. How do these two stories come together? Why am I telling these two stories, okay? Story number one, we gotta go way back. I was a teenager, would have been uh, fall of 1989. And I was one of these guys that after high school, I didn't go to college right away, needed to sort things out. Now they call it a gap year and it's totally cool. Back then I was a loser, everybody thought I was never gonna amount to anything. Everybody was worried I'd never go to college. Like, ah, oh, he's out. He's going to get a taste of earning money. He's never going to go to college, right? So I took a couple years off in the end. But fall of 89, all my friends were heading off to their sophomore year at State and USD and wherever else. I'm like, hey, everybody's gone. It's beautiful weather. I love the outdoors. Anybody out like the outdoors? Anybody feel like they can really connect with God in the outdoors? I was not a Christian yet at this time. Let me clarify that part of the story. These are my BC days. You've heard that? This is 1989 BC, before Christ, in my life at least. And so I decided I'm going to go camping. I'm going to do some solo camping up in the Sierra. And I didn't have a car or a truck. I just had a motorcycle. I live in San Diego, right? You can get away with that. So I pack everything I can in a little milk crate, and I strap it to the back of my motorcycle. But it's just a little milk crate, which means no tent, no sleeping bag. It's me under the stars, okay? And I'm thinking, I'm a tough guy. I'm 19 years old. I can do this. Right? I'm going to be out there. My brother was a Navy SEAL, and he'd do all this crazy stuff. Like, I could be a Navy SEAL. No, no chance. But maybe I could go camping. So I hop on my motorcycle. I head up to Sequoia National Park. Seven, eight hours. Pretty exhausting on a motorcycle. Your body's sore. Your butt hurts, right? You've been fighting the wind the whole time. So I find a campground. I get set up. There's not much to set up. There's no tent. There's no sleeping bag, right? I had a blanket. And so I, I made an area where I could sleep with some, some uh, leaves, and I threw a blanket over it. And the sun was starting to go down. I made a fire, and I cooked up some pork and beans, like classic you know, wagon train kind of food, right? And I ate my pork and beans and tossed the old can in the fire to burn it up. And the sun's going down, and I'm just beat. I'm like, I'm going to sleep, and I'm going to get up early and go hiking. So I'm getting ready to lie down, and I notice there's a, a bear canister or a bear box. You've seen these when you've gone camping. Like in places where there are bears, they say, shove everything smelly in here so the bears can't get to it. I'm like, I wonder what's in there. And I open it up, and it was like, la, there's this pool floaty. You know, like those sort of, it's like a little bed that you can lounge around in the pool and drink your Pepsi and hang out. And when it was filled with air, and it was just stuffed in a bear box in the middle of the Sierra, I'm like, Thank you. Well, if I knew Jesus, I would have said, thank you, Jesus. And so, hey, who needs, these, uh, who needs these leaves? Those are for the squirrels, right? I'm sleeping on a pool floaty tonight. So I set up my pool floaty, and I lay down, and I pull up my blanket. And you, know, you don't have a lot of room on a pool floaty, so you can't really roll over and do all the stuff you normally do. So I'm just lying on my back, and either my hands were like this or like this. I can't quite remember, but they were up high. And I fell asleep fast. I, I fell asleep hard and fast. And I remember 
looking up, and the moon was coming up off to my left. I fell asleep, and kind of in no time flat, I'm just sort of blinking and looking around, and now the moon's directly overhead, and it's a deep, dark black outside. I'm like, all right, it's been a few hours. But something woke me up. I wonder what it was. And so I lift my head like this just to see, and I see this large brown mass, and it's right about here. It's close enough. If I had gone like this, I would have kicked it in the butt, whatever it was. It was right there. And so I suck in my air, and I kind of hold my breath for a second, and this large brown mass, which of course was a bear, moves away from me. And he's moving perfectly perpendicular. And I'm just whispering kind of quietly to myself, holy smokes, holy smokes. But remember, this was my BC days, so I, I didn't say holy smokes. I said something else. Not Maranatha Chapel approved. So here I am watching this bear just a few feet walking away from me, and, and I quickly do the geometry in my head, and I realize that he's moving perpendicular to my body, all right? Which means either, and I'm doing all this in a split second in my head, either he walked right up to me, right up to my body, and made a hard right turn, or worse yet, he stepped over my legs and kept walking into the camp, because that's how close he was. Like I said, I could have gone like that, and I would have kicked him right in the rear end. That's how close this bear was. So I'm like, oh my gosh. And you know, you know what the, any kind of a startle you know, fear response is. Right? Eyes are wide open. Sleep is all gone. I am wide awake. My heart is pounding. I'm breathing really fast and shallow. My palms are sweaty immediately. And my muscles are all like tensed up and shaking. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is insane. What am I supposed to do? And I'm so laser focused on this, right? Somebody could have tried to talk to me like, hey, Dave, I got $1,000. You need any money? I wouldn't have heard it, right? I was just, bear. I'm watching this bear. And so he's lumbering around. And of course, the first thing he does, he goes to the fire and finds that can of pork and beans. I'm like, oh, okay. I got to remember not to do that again. That was dumb. And then he's rummaging around other stuff. And at one point, he's got his back to me like this. And all of a sudden, he just stops. And he turns. And he makes eye contact with me. And he's just staring right at me, like he just now noticed me. And I'm like, oh boy, this is not good. This is not going to go well. And he was probably about as far away as my big head is there. So what's that, 20, 30 feet? I don't know, something like that. And he decides, to check out what that is. And he starts just kind of trotting. He wasn't charging, but he just starts kind of trotting towards me to see what I am. Now, I, I know black bears don't eat people, so I'm not expecting him to like come lunch on me, but what if he gets there and he doesn't like what he finds, or he thinks I'm a big log and starts pawing at me or sniffing at my face? I didn't want any of that, right? That sounded really scary to me. And so I had to make a decision. I'm either going to play dead get up and run, or I'm going to have to face this bear. So in the fraction of a second before he got to me, I just jumped in the air, and I threw that blanket up in the air, and I just yelled, Rah! and that bear put on the brakes, and he turned around, and he bolted. And I'm still standing there thinking I'm a bear. And slowly I start to feel like I can breathe again. And the heart rate starts to come down. And then I realize my hands are still up in the air. OK, I guess I can bring those down. And over the next few minutes, things start to settle down. My hands aren't quite so sweaty. 
heart rate is slowing down. I can think about other things. I can look around my surroundings and take in other information, right? And over the next hour or so, I got almost back down to like baseline, let's say. Now, don't be fooled. The rest of the night, I had my flashlight out. And every crack of a twig, I was like, what was that? What was that? What was that? I was sure he was coming back, like with his friends. Like, oh, I'll teach him a lesson. Think he can growl at me. We're going to growl at him, right? And so all night, I was terrified, just waiting. But that whole response had settled down. What do we call that response? That's the fight or flight response, isn't it? I don't want to say it saved my life. Maybe it did. But it sure saved me some really close encounter I didn't want to have. Okay? Okay, now that's that's story number one. Let's fast forward to summer of 2014. I've been a professor at Point Loma Nazarene at that point for 10 years. Been pushing really hard. I was coming up for tenure that summer. I was uh, trying to manage a large NIH grant and all the researchers associated with that. I had a heavy teaching load. I had committee responsibilities. Um, just lots going on. Lots of students that I was advising through their curriculum, through their degree programs. And let's not forget that about an hour away, so a long commute on the freeways of San Diego, I had a young family that needed me too, right? And a house that needed to be worked on. Everything was falling apart, right? Some of these things you might be able to relate to at some point in your journey. I was stressed. I don't think I knew it. Because what I had learned through the years was that the way to get through these tough times is to tough up, right? Suck it up, buttercup, right? Put one foot in front of the other and keep on marching. You do what's got to be done. And that's what I kept trying to do. Not recognizing how stressed I was, not recognizing how much I needed to back off, not recognizing my own perfectionism, in the midst of all this. I didn't want to just be a professor. I wanted to be the best teacher these students ever had. And I wanted to be the best researcher the NIH had ever given money to. And I wanted to be the best dad and the best husband. And there's that kind of pressure. I just could not handle it. So summer of 2014, I started to feel sick physically. I didn't know what was going on. And uh, my buddy Ryan and I were supposed to go fly fishing for a weekend. And we get in the car, and we're heading up I-15, going to head up to the Sierra. And like, Ryan, I just can't do this. I just feel miserable. I'm dizzy. I'm nauseous. I'm just going to be curled up in a ball in the tent the whole time. So we turn around, and we come back, and we cancel it. And I make an appointment with the doctor. And that became the first of many appointments. Because over the following days and then over the following weeks, I kept getting worse. I was getting sicker. I had no appetite. I couldn't keep any food down. And then after that, you know, a couple weeks of that, and, and you're just tired, you're fatigued, you get discouraged. And every time I went to see a specialist of some sort, they said, hey, you're perfectly healthy. How can that be? I know I'm not perfectly healthy, right? I can't get out of bed some mornings, physically can't get up without my wife's help. How is that perfectly healthy? About eight or nine weeks into this, if you can imagine going through this, getting worse and worse for months at this point, one very compassionate doctor, after thoroughly examining me in his specialty and telling me I was textbook, textbook healthy, he said, you know, you should know that I've seen these exact sets of symptoms in people dealing with too much stress. 
I said, what? I've been on vacation for like a week. There's no way I'm too stressed out. I didn't want to hear it. And to me, it kind of sounded like he was saying, it's all in your head. It didn't take long for me to realize that's not quite what he was saying. But what he was saying was that maybe all these physical symptoms are manifestations of a whole lot of stress you're not dealing with up here. And so I self-checked into the psychiatry department, and I got a, a diagnosis finally of generalized anxiety disorder and depression. And in the following months and years, began unpacking it with the help of some good therapists. And, and medication, at times, has been important. I don't know how you feel about psychiatric medications. Sometimes in the church, we worry that we're playing God or something like that. But as an infectious disease specialist, I would hope if you get a urinary tract infection, you take your antibiotics. If your brain's not working quite right biologically, maybe there's some medication that can help you to overcome wherever you're at, right? I have people say, no, you really shouldn't be taking those meds. You should just pray. How about I pray and take the meds? Is that okay for a Christian to say that, yes, I trust God, but I also trust that he's put some people in our lives, some specialists that can really help us. If you break your leg, are you just going to say, no, no, I'm good. I'm just going to pray. No, you call an ambulance, and then in the back of the ambulance, you pray all the way in, right? Right? Because God does give us, as part of his manifold grace, he gives us doctors and, and therapists and psychiatrists and pastors and people that can help us with a lot of these things. So over the course of months, I had to call the university, by the way, and say, I don't know what's going on, but I cannot teach this semester. And again, by God's grace, they said, you take care of you. Your job's waiting for you when you get back. So grateful for that. So I had time to think about and work on figuring out where I've gone wrong. And it's just been a long journey of unpacking and learning and growing and recovering, really, from about 10 years of unchecked stress that ultimately led to an anxiety disorder and depression. What do these two stories have in common? What's the common thread? There's that stress piece, right? It turns out that what I experienced in the summer of 2014 was actually fight or flight. The same thing I had experienced facing those bears. That bear, there's just one. My story's getting bigger all the time. Now there's lots of bears, and they were polar bears. <laughs> no. Um, it, it was the, the, the same thing, because in God's infinite wisdom, he has given the human brain one general stress response. Did you know that? And it's designed to keep us alive in the face of a crisis that's life-threatening, like a bear, like a rattlesnake on the trail, uh, like you glance down at your phone when you're driving, you look up, and the car in front of you is stopped. And then your heart stops for a second while you hit the brakes, right? We've all felt part of that, that response. And in the case of the bear, it made sense, and it probably saved my life or saved me something, right? But in our modern stressors, our modern stressors are things like, you know, a negative balance in your checking account. See, when I yelled at that bear, he ran off. And so everything was able to reset again. Can you just yell and shout at your U.S. bank account and, I want money, and all of a sudden it's in the positives? It's not going to happen, right? 
Our stressors are much more chronic. They're things like relationship stressors, financial stressors. We've got a lot of stressors right now too, don't we? Did you guys know there's like a, this pandemic thing? Have you heard about that? COVID-19? Crazy. Check it out on the news. There's like this, this virus. It's just insane. And it's disrupted all of our lives, hasn't it? And it's disrupted our lives in some really unexpected ways. Yes, there have been the inconveniences of masks and school closures and social distancing and working from home and nobody likes Zoom, and right? There have been those kinds of things. There's been uh, a lot of illness. There's been some death. We know this too well, don't we? But some things we didn't expect. We didn't expect to see our whole culture just split in two over this thing, did we? To where some people at one end say, hey, we, we need to wear masks and honor social distancing and get vaccinated. And others at the other end say, you know, you, if you want to vaccinate me, you come on in here and we'll see how many guns I've got in my house and never wearing a mask and you can't make me. And, and it's a hoax. Have you heard that? That it's a hoax. And, and then everybody in between. And unfortunately, it's not like we can say, well, these states or these countries look at it this way and these look at it this way. Sometimes in the very same household, we've got people in both directions who are just seriously at odds right now. And being at odds like that with people you love, maybe in your church family, maybe in your family at home, maybe just across the nation, however you're feeling it, is really stressful. Don't underestimate how stressful that is. You watch the news sometimes, or you read it online wherever you get your news feed. Do you ever feel the stress, the anxiety kind of welling up a little bit in you? You know, maybe you're on one side of the political spectrum and you're reading an article that's at the other side of the political spectrum and it's just boiling inside you. Okay, don't underestimate how stressful that is. So we've had a pandemic. We've had crazy political turmoil the last couple of years. We've had social unrest. I mean, this has been a really tough time. And during this time, the regular stressors don't stop, do they? Your kids still rebel, right? Cancer still happens, right? You still twist your ankle and can't go to work. All the normal other stressors are still going, but now it's not in a backdrop of relative stability. It's in a backdrop of just total instability. We've got a lot of stress that we're dealing with right now, don't we? And it's important for us to understand that because those stressors are like bears, Here's the metaphor and where it comes in tonight. Those stressors are like bears because remember, each stressor triggers your fight or flight response a little bit. And if the next one piles on, they're additive, it turns out, and the next one piles on. And even if everyone is just a little stressor, you might reach whatever that threshold is just with all those little stressors. And when we reach that threshold, we end up with some sort of what we call a mental illness. Now, let's be careful with that term, because sometimes we say mental illness and we think of the extremes. We think of a homeless person who's hallucinating on the streets, or we think of someone with a severe psychosis that can't function. Okay? Tonight, we're going to talk about mental illness as simply the opposite of perfect mental health, right? the stuff that you and I deal with on a daily basis. You're stressed out, and it's making your emotions swing, and you're snapping at the people you love. Okay, that's, that's, not, uh, that's not good overall mental health in that situation. 
So that's what I'm talking about. So don't, don't let your mind, when we talk about mental health, just go to the extremes. Think about the things that are more daily, that we deal with more on a daily basis. Can we agree on that? Okay. USCDC defines optimal mental health as simply the ability to cope with daily stressors in life. That's it. The ability to cope with daily stressors in life. And then they do their studies and they estimate how many of us are experiencing that optimal mental health. What do you think the percentage is? Seventeen percent is their estimate of at any given time how many of us are actually experiencing that. What that means then is that the rest of us are somewhere else on that spectrum. You know, somewhere between optimal mental health and falling apart. The wheels flying off the wagon as it races downhill. Right? We've all felt that way at some point. But the rest of us are somewhere else on that spectrum. And that's almost all of us in this room. Agreed? At some point or another. Now, mental health statistics are very good across the country in general. But if we want to know what's going on inside the church, it's a lot harder to find that data. It really is. Very few people have done studies, and most of those studies are very small. There's one really good study that looked at thousands of church leaders, and we'll talk about the data from that as sort of a, a proxy for what we think might be happening in here. Because maybe you're thinking, okay, well, Dave, that's, that's in the general population. Here in the church, we've got Jesus. And we do. Thank God, literally, that we have Jesus. But does that mean that we're immune to these mental health struggles? Listen to some of these statistics. This is just US. This is not breaking it down inside the church. One in five adults deals with a mental illness. At any given moment, what's there, maybe 100 people in here? That means 20 of us in this room right now are at a stage or a season of life where we're far from that optimal mental health place that we'd like to be. One in five. That's not a small number, is it? The lifetime rate is 50%. Half of us will experience a diagnosed or diagnosable mental illness at some point in our lives. So take a minute and turn to the person next to you and decide which one of you it's going to be. Because the odds are half of us are going to do it. So let's just settle it now. Less stress for later. And if it's the other person, not, the, not, not you, then just say, I'll be here for you, you know, when you get there. Thanks for taking one for the team. 50% lifetime rate in the United States. Most of this that we see is anxiety and depression. Anxiety is by far the biggest, most common mental illness, if you want to call it a mental illness. And when we think of anxiety, we're talking about worry, fear, uh, can't sleep at night, tummy upset, nervous, can't focus, right? And, it, and when we say anxiety, when we say anxiety, 18% at any given moment, which is almost that one in five, Okay, at any given moment, we're talking about anxiety that's enough to interfere with your life. Not your daily worries that you're coping well with, but enough worry, enough fear that it interferes with your daily life. Same with depression. Now, you notice 
We said one in five adults suffers, but then 18% have anxiety, seven have depression. If you're doing the math, that's 25%. That's one in four. What's going on here? There's a significant number of those with anxiety that also have depression on top of it. Lucky them. I should say lucky us, because that's me, right? Anxiety and depression do often go hand in hand. Not always, but frequently they do go hand in hand. Now, what about in the church? I said that there aren't a lot of studies just looking at people who claim to be followers of Christ. Are we immune? Are we immune? Well, the best study looks at our church leaders, and we're talking about thousands of church leaders that were surveyed for this across the United States. And these are all from uh, evangelical churches. Almost 100% of these church leaders said they are aware of specific people in their congregation that have mental health disorders. I think it's safe to say that means that virtually every church in our country has somebody. So 98%, but listen to this about themselves. More than a third of those church leaders say that they have dealt with depression or bipolar themselves personally. 39%, well over a third, approaching half of all of our church leaders. 23% say they've dealt with an anxiety disorder. Do you remember the stats from the total US? That was 18%. If this study is accurate, that means our church leaders are dealing with anxiety at a higher rate than the general public. About a third of them say that if they have a diagnosis or medication, they keep it very private. They chose those words on the forum, very private. What does that tell you about the culture that we have in the church surrounding mental health? Right? When an associate pastor doesn't feel maybe safe to tell his senior pastor, when a youth leader doesn't feel safe to tell their youth pastor what they're dealing with, It points to a cultural issue, doesn't it? Even within the doors of the church. So despite all this data, despite all of this known mental illness within our churches, only 13% of those leaders say that their church is doing a good job talking about it. We're just not talking about it. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. But maybe more importantly, it triggers shame in many cases. Would you agree with that? You know, you get a diagnosis of something like depression, you feel broken, and you often automatically blame yourself. Maybe intellectually you know it's not your fault, but it's hard to not blame yourself for these things. If we could stop blaming ourselves for something that we're experiencing, we might be able to talk a little more freely about it with a little less shame. We could push back against that shame. And the more we talk about it, the more we name it, the more we're going to be able to fight it. Let's try something a little different. <clears throat> right? We don't have great data for the Christian church, but we've got about 100 people or so in the room. If you're willing to take a little survey, completely anonymous, and I promise you that, I use this all the time, It's not tied to your phone or your social security number or your bank account. You're not going to pick some answer and your driver's license shows up here and it says, Marge is depressed. 
okay, to be completely anonymous to me and to everybody in the room. Take your phone out for a minute. I know we always say put your phone away at church. Take your phone out. Open up Safari or whatever, whatever you've got that you can open. And go to this website called menti, M-E-N-T-I dot com. When you get to menti.com, it's going to ask you if you want to join a presentation. And just type in that number and you'll join a presentation, this presentation that's just here in this room. And I'm just going to ask a couple questions and we'll just sort of take the temperature of this space and these people that just showed up tonight, right? We could think of that as a, almost a random sample in the church. If you're not sure, over here I've got folks that are like older than me. There's a bunch of young guys over on this side. They can help you with your phone and show you how to actually do it. So if you guys are struggling, just merge over with the youngsters. They'll get it for you. Check with the person sitting next to you. Make sure they're able to get onto menti.com. I am going to switch over briefly, if it'll let me, to this. Do you have this page up on your phone? Yeah? Yeah? If you're still trying to log into it, the number is still up there. You see it at the top where it says, go to menti.com and use this code. You can see lots of people logging in down there. It just says there's a whole bunch of you logging in. The first question I'm going to ask you is this. What have the last couple of years felt like to you? In a word or a phrase, what have the last couple of years felt like to you? Now, avoid vulgarities, even if that's what they felt like to you. This is not the time to be silly and type hi, mom, or something like that. And I think you can actually put two words or phrases. You get a, a second one. <clears throat> They're moving pretty fast right now, but see if you can see some of these. Here's an interesting point. The size of the word or phrase is relative to how many people typed it in. Look at that word hard just sitting there. All right, that's clearly the most common one people have typed in. Ooh, they're getting smaller. That's hard to read. And when they stop moving, we'll read a couple of them. Remember, you can't script this stuff. I'm not pulling out some study that somebody published, right? I'm just saying, hey, who are we? How are we doing in this room right here tonight, right now? I see stressful, difficult, hard, sad, challenging, confusing, roller coaster, anxiety-ridden, spiritual growth, crazy busy, the title of a very good book, by the way. Not one I wrote, though. Uh... Unusual, okay, painful, tough, busy, struggle, strange, overwhelming, dramatic. Somebody wrote, ah. Actually, a couple of you did. Uh, empty, stupid, stressed, interesting, hopeless, united. It's nice to see some positives in there sometimes, but just be honest. Paranoia. Girl boss. I don't know what that means, but it's cool. Um, like a couple of years, all right, show-stopping, claustrophobic, holding my breath, horrendous, happy, shocking, very difficult, relaxing, 
frightening, phenomenal. Boy, what can we take away from this? We've got a big room, and there's a lot of people that have experienced the last couple of years in a lot of different ways, haven't we? Somebody recently said to me, I said something about, well, we don't know how so-and-so feels. And they said, oh, we know exactly how they feel because we're experiencing this too. I'm not sure you can say that about anybody. And for some of us, this is obviously very hard, isn't it? Let's get a little more specific. If you could rank your stress over the last couple of years, one through four, how would you rank it? One is no stress, it's all good, right? You're just, you're on the beach, toes are in the sand, listen to Bob Marley, it's all good. Two is a little stress, but not bad. Three is a lot of stress. And four, you'd go so far as to say, I'm just overwhelmed with the stress of all this. I love how it shows up in real time and we can sort of see it forming. Starting to see a pattern. I think there's a couple of you still chiming in, but uh, the biggest peak, obviously, is number three, a lot of stress. Maybe not overwhelming, but a lot of stress. And yet, four and three, if you add them up, what's that, 100 and it keeps changing. Stop it. No, don't stop. Keep adding. It's like 118 there, something like that, versus 45 on the left side of the graph. You see what I'm seeing? The majority of you, by a long shot, are picking three or four. Safe to say that in general, the last couple of years have been pretty stressful for a lot of us. Not everybody, but a lot of us. Stress can be pretty high. That's 165 of you. Pretty good sample here. Six of you are like, what's this pandemic thing you're talking about? It's good. God bless you. He gave you just an even keel. It's awesome. We need more people like you. 40 are saying, yeah, a little stressed, but not bad. You've learned some good skills, and you're managing well. And the rest of us are in a lot of stress or overwhelmed with stress. And that's by far the majority of the room. Do you see what I'm seeing here? I couldn't have planned this. I didn't just come in here and pick and choose some data. I just asked you, and this is what you're telling me. 172 of you are telling me that. What about your anxiety? Remember, anxiety means your worry, your fears, your nervousness. And if you're anything like me, maybe you don't even know it's anxiety, but you're feeling fatigued, or you're dealing with more headaches, or you're not sleeping well, or your GI tract. That's one of the very first things that goes with anxiety is the GI tract. You know how when you get butterflies? Like, imagine you showed up tonight, and Pastor John said, oh, this Dave guy didn't show up. I need you to get up on stage and say something good. Woo, you might get some butterflies, right? That's the fight or flight kind of tickling your, your physical body. It's the beginning of the fight or flight response. And if he looks like he's serious, you might actually run or, or punch him, right? It might turn into full-blown fight or flight. Oh, this looks quite a bit like the last one, doesn't it? Remember, we said that stress that's unchecked, undealt with, often leads to an anxiety disorder, where the anxiety is enough that it interferes with your life. 
Only nine of you in panic mode. I'm sorry, I will be praying for you. I know that feeling. But the biggest peak by far is a lot of anxiety with very little peace. And again, there's 15 of you that are just listening to Bob Marley, and you got your earbuds in right now. Like, singing, don't worry. Because every little thing's going to be all right. Okay, that's our anxiety level. Just in this room, last question's a little different. What about your mood? And let's oversimplify our mood to just happy and sad, and various levels of happy and sad. Are you happy all the time? Are you usually happy, but sometimes sad? Flip-flop that, sometimes happy, but usually sad? Would you go so far as to use words like depressed or hopeless? You notice this graph doesn't look like the first two, does it? The link between stress and your mood is not nearly as strong. Our mood, like depression and, and sadness and happiness, are much more complicated than simply stress causing anxiety. There's more of a one-to-one -one correspondence between stress and anxiety. Stress and anxiety can contribute to depression, but lots of other things can contribute to depression as well. Okay, we got our same six that are just happy all the time. I want to meet you guys after because you guys are just killing this test. But now look, the majority of you, despite all that stress and anxiety we just uncovered in this room, the majority is still leaning towards usually happy. Right? That's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. That's a healthy place with your mood. And I want to commend you for that. You might need to work on the anxiety based on the, the previous slide. But it sounds like your mood has found a good, equitable place to be in. However, let's not discount the 36, 16, and 4 that are on the right side of this. In this room, we got 165 of you that have chimed in so far. We've got, what's that, 40, 52, 56 of you out of 165 are not really in a good place. As we sit here today with your emotional state, sometimes happy but usually sad. I can relate to that. My depression is called dysthymia. And what that means is that my baseline is lower than most people's baseline, right? If this is just an average day for most people, an average day for me is just a little lower than that. And I have to recognize that and work with it. Depression, we tend to choose that word when we're feeling it pretty deep. It's more than just dysthymic. We're kind of down deep and in a bad place. Sometimes that's situational. Sometimes it's just a season of life. Other times it's something chronic, something that needs to be dealt with and that you honestly deserve to have it dealt with. Let me, let me affirm you in that. There are four of you that chose hopeless, and I joked on the last one that I'd be praying for the panic people, but I will be praying for those of you that chose hopeless. That's a tough, tough place to be. I understand it. I've been there. That is a really tough place to be. What do we do with this, though? Let me tell you that those of you that chose number four or number five, there's 20 of you in the room. Um, let me just say seriously that it's not likely you can pull yourself out of that on your own. Please do seek professional help if that's you. Um, don't let that shame 
keep you from getting that help or making you feel like you don't deserve the help or that it's your fault. I can't always understand why we go there, but we do. We blame ourselves a lot for the experiences that we have. And so sometimes we say, oh, well, I just got to get my life together before I talk to anybody about this. Because we'd rather say, I used to be depressed than to say, I am depressed. It's much easier to talk about things that are in the past that are resolved than to talk about things we're experiencing right now. But let me tell you, if you're feeling depressed or hopeless, you're not likely to pull yourself out of that entirely on your own, okay? Just from from one brother to another or to a sister, whoever you guys are, please do take the courageous step to get the help that you need. What can we say from all this? Well, there's a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, and some depression and hopelessness just in this room. I didn't have to plan anything. I didn't have to dig up statistics from anywhere. I just asked you guys. I tell you what, I, I speak and I talk about this and we do this, this little Mentimeter thing all over the place. College kids, church folks, businesses. And it's almost always very, very similar. This is real. This is real. Do you guys think that mental illness in the churches is, is a real thing now? Yes, we've got Jesus. Thank God we have Jesus. But that does not produce immunity to the challenges of the world. I am going to try to switch back to my PowerPoint, if it will let me. And we'll start wrapping this up with some, some thoughts. Let's start with scripture. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible regarding our mental illnesses, our mental health struggles. Let's start with just the first line of John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble. That is a promise I have never seen on a mug or a t-shirt. I don't know why. And people that like to claim promises, I've never heard them claiming this one. And yet Jesus himself very firmly and clearly said, in this world, you will have trouble. Now, let's not ignore part B, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Now, does he say, take heart, for you have overcome the world? No, he says, I have overcome the world. And that's why we unite ourselves and our eternal fate to him, because we know that he's overcome the world, and eventually with him we will too. But for now, John 16, 33a is the promise that we have to live with. Now, I don't say that to discourage you. In fact, I say that to encourage you, to help you see that this is a normal part of the Christian life. Even as a dedicated, committed follower of Jesus, you are still going to have troubles. And the data that we just showed ourselves right here live in this room confirms that a lot of us are struggling with troubles that have to do with our mental and emotional health. They shouldn't shock us. They're certainly not shocking to God. He knows exactly what's happening, and he doesn't want us to be ashamed of them. He wants us to get help. So now you're thinking, okay, Dave, you've convinced me, but what can I do? How do we get practical about this? What can I do? I want to give you three things. Bye, guys. I want to give you three things 
that you can do. I do that to my students when they get up and leave in the middle of class. Like, what did I do? Did I offend you? They hate it. Okay, I want to give you three things that you can do. If you like to write things down, these are the three things to write down tonight. These are the three things to take away because these are your action points, right? What can you do? Number one, let's stick with our bear metaphor. Chase the bears off when they show up, like I did that night. Chase them off. What does that mean in terms of our, our lives and our, our mental and emotional health? It means having coping skills ready to deal with these intense stressors when they come. When a crisis arrives, and it will, that's not the time to then figure out, well, what are some good crisis coping skills? No, learn that ahead of time. Have those skills. Have a toolkit ready. Because once you've got that toolkit and that crisis comes and you're short of breath and you're thinking, I'm going to have a panic attack and I can't deal with this. Oh, but you know what? When I was thinking more clearly, I learned some deep breathing exercises. Or I discovered the power of a particular psalm that is just so calming and soothing. I am going to go to that and just pray through it. Or I've got this relationship with a friend that I know is safe, that's not going to judge me. I'm going to go to this friend and share exactly what I'm experiencing. Because he or she can talk me through it, maybe even talk me down from it. Learn some coping skills that you can use to chase the bears off when they do show up. Okay, so coping, number one. Number two, wouldn't it be nice to keep the bears out of your camp in the first place? These are what we call resilience building skills. So coping is dealing with the problems in the moment. Resilience is saying, well, when the problems come, maybe they don't have to hurt so much. Maybe I can bounce back better. That requires that in the in-between times, when you're thinking clearly and feeling good, you're learning these and practicing these resilience-building skills. Maybe it's uh, getting regular exercise. Maybe it's eating better. Um, Maybe it's uh, a, a scriptural meditation that you're doing, right? Whatever the resilience skills are for you personally that help you build up that ability to withstand a bit more. Remember we talked about earlier, we said that the little bears, the little stressors add up until you reach some kind of a a limit. And that's when things break. Resilience is about raising that limit, right? Coping is about knocking those little bears out. Resilience is about raising that limit, raising your tolerance so that you don't break at the first sign of stress or trouble. And then the third third one is to learn to live with some of the bears. If you can't chase them off and they're going to get in anyway, you can't do anything about it. Sometimes acceptance is your only option. So we've got coping skills, we've got resilience building, and we've got learning acceptance. If you're familiar with the serenity prayer from Reinhold Niebuhr, a lot of uh, 12-step recovery programs rely heavily on it. The opening lines might sound familiar to you. He wrote, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Those are the bears that are going to get in and you can't chase off. And all you can do is learn to live with them. Well, what kinds of things can't you change? Can you change the past? Can you change the fact that you made some lousy decisions and hurt a lot of people? Can you change the fact that somebody abused you when you were younger? Or that your husband left you for somebody else? We can't change the past. We have to learn to accept that. 
as painful as it is. The other thing you can't change besides the past, hear me now, you can't change other people. Some of you are like, what? But I thought if I loved him enough, I could change him. No, that's called codependency, when we think that we can love him enough to change him. You can't change the decisions your adult children are making. You can't change the heart of that spouse of yours that's gone cold. You can't change other people. Put both of those into this bottom category of things that you have to learn to accept. It's the only place you're going to find peace. Now let's go back to that prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Do you remember the next line? The courage to change the things I can. That's the first two. And it takes courage to chase the bears off or to, to do the hard work of building resilience. And then finally, the wisdom to know the difference. That means, is this really something I can change? And just because you can change it doesn't always mean you should. Maybe your job is a big source of stress. I'm not telling you to go quit your job. Maybe being without a job would be more stressful right now. Okay, so you have to have the wisdom to know the difference between things you can change and can't change and maybe things you just shouldn't change. But with God's help and with the help of a friend, you can sift things into these categories. Things you can change, things you can't change. Coping skills, resilience building, and acceptance. These three things are going to take you a long way in your journey towards reclaiming that peace and that joy that is yours in Christ that maybe you feel like, where did it go? Where did it go? How bad do you want it? Let me ask you that. How badly do you want it? What lengths are you willing to go to? Let me tell you a story about being willing to go to great lengths to protect something that matters to you. One of my kids, when he was a toddler, we're going to call him Ryan, okay? because that's his name. And I'll, I'll get the story mixed up if I change it. So Ryan was about two. And he's in a diaper. And Ann was off doing something else, so it was my job to change him. And I changed him. And he was so happy out of the diaper. I'm like, yeah, just go run. Mom's not home. Go ahead. And so I let him run around without his diaper on. Oh, and there's another part of the story that we were getting ready to sell the house, so I just had the carpets professionally cleaned. That has nothing to do with it. Yeah, that won't factor in. So, so Ryan runs around, and you know, he's just a toddler. So a couple minutes out of sight, you're thinking, what is he up to? So I remember tiptoeing around the corner from the kitchen to the living room. We had this long living room and long carpet. Really looked good right after paying for having it professionally cleaned. And he's way down at the opposite end, and he's down in the position. And he's down like this, and he's just ready. He's ready to let it go. I'm thinking, oh, no, I just had these carpets cleaned. And so I just start running. And I'm running towards him. It felt like slow motion. And I can see it coming out. And I'm like, oh. And I'm thinking, there's just no way. I'm not going to get to him in time. So I dive. And I go sliding across this carpet with my hands out like I'm begging for bread or something. And I come sliding. And I stop just at the right spot, just in time. I get this, this steaming, wet, warm, swirly in my hands. And I breathe a sigh of relief. 
And little Ryan stands up and he looks at me like, you're weird, Dad. And he just goes off and does something else. And then later, my wife and I just laughed and laughed about that because I'm just laying on the carpet, (laughs) protecting my investment. I was willing to go to great lengths, (laughs) sacrifice my pride and dignity. What lengths are you willing to go to to get your serenity back? What lengths are you willing to go to? What steps, what hard work are you willing to take? Are you willing to learn coping skills? Not wait till you're in trouble to learn them, but learn them. Same with the the resilience building skills. Are you willing to do the hard work it takes with the Lord to to just accept things that you can't change? You know, in in Christian circles and to some degree in scripture, we talk about laying down our burdens at Jesus' feet or at the foot of the cross. This is what it means. It means I can't chase that burden off and I can't change it or keep it out. I just have to accept it. And the only way I can do it, God, is with your help. And I'm just going to lay it here and I'm going to say, I trust you because I got nothing. Help me with this. Help me with this person in my life. Help me with this trauma from my past that I can't change. It takes hard work, though. It takes dedication. It takes sliding across the floor with your hands open. <laughs> Whatever it's going to take, how willing are you? I'm going to wrap this up with a thought. In order to do this, there's a lot of things that that go into it, but in order to do this, there's a key factor that's often missing in many of our lives, and we're going to call it self-compassion. How do you talk to yourself? I know you talk to yourself, so don't try to deny that. How do you talk to yourself? Not very nicely, maybe. What kind of relationship do you have with yourself? Like, are you guys on speaking terms? Are you getting along these days? Right? What sort of words do you choose when you talk to yourself? Are you using the same grace towards yourself that you would towards a friend in the same situation? The Apostle Paul in Colossians writes, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, that's you, not somebody else, it's you, clothe yourselves with compassion. Right? Just picture compassion as like a big robe that you cover yourself up in. Clothe yourself in compassion. And that includes self-compassion. You're like, no, Dave, he's talking about other people. What did Jesus say was the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as you love what? Yourself. The implication is that you are being loving towards yourself. Clothe yourselves with compassion for you. A similar one, this is just the heart of empathy. And you've got to have empathy for yourself in these situations. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Do you let yourself celebrate the victories? Mourn with those who mourn. Do you let yourself grieve the losses and feel those without beating yourself up or rushing through them because you don't want to experience the pain? And then last but not least, my favorite I'll invite the band up to come and finish uh, with some worship for us as I wrap up my last thought here. I love Romans 8.1. Don't get mad at me, but I like it better than John 3.16. This is the heart of the gospel in one sentence. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for your failures of the past, 
No condemnation for your present ongoing failures that you're mired in. No condemnation for your future failures. If God says, I don't condemn you, can you learn to not condemn yourself? If you can get to this place where you have self-compassion instead of self-condemnation, you're going to be able to, to have the courage and the serenity and the desire to reclaim that joy and that peace that is rightfully yours in Jesus. One last point, and then I'm going to pray for us, and I'll let the band get started. Um, John mentioned that I wrote a book. It's the same title as my talk tonight. I love the cover. Little bears just sneaking around everywhere. Everybody's got bears. We all do. Um, my lovely wife, Anne, has some copies of my book if you want to pick it up. If you're feeling like, I need to think more about this, I need to go deeper into this for a while, I need to see where God takes me with this, maybe pick up a copy because we just scratched the surface tonight. And if you're like, no, I, I want that. I want my serenity back. I want that peace and that joy back. How do I get it? How do I get there? I want to push back against shame. I want to put, push back against the, the voice of the enemy telling me I just don't deserve to be happy. How are we going to get there? Pick up a copy of that, see if it helps you. It may or may not. I know the guy that wrote it. It's kind of weird. Let me pray for you guys. Lord, thank you for this group here tonight who came thinking it was just another Wednesday night realized some microbiologist was going to push their buttons. If anybody's been triggered tonight, Lord, give them the support they need to cope with that trigger. If anybody has been nudged in the right direction, or the direct, I should say, in a direction towards change and towards healing, towards recovery from anxiety, depression, chronic stress, I pray, Lord, you'd surround them with the right people, with safe people, and that, Lord, they would engage you directly, the great physician, and you would guide them towards that healing. Just give you such great thanks tonight. We know you are good, God, in everything you do. And for that, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.